Hello, welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, A Chapter at a Time, spoiler free. In this episode, we're talking about Chapter 14 of Northern Lights, Bolvanger Lights. <laughs> Sounds funny saying Northern Lights and then Bolvanger Lights. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm I'm okay. I'm good. I, I think I'm I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Same. Now. You know it's kind of hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I feel that. It's weird. It's a weird time. I've been ill for like 5 days, which has not been fun. Oh, buddy. I'm feeling a little bit better now, although I'm boiling to death in my flat. It's so hot in here. Oh my gosh, yeah, I can't imagine your flat is so hot anyway. Yeah, it's super hot. It's it's one of those things where like if you acclimatize it acclimatize to it throughout the day, it's fine because like you're you're getting through it. But like if you go outside, or like if you open the door, or if you go into another room where maybe it's not as hot, and you come back into the hot room, you're like, God, this is horrendous. Um, and because we're recording, we usually have like the balcony door open and all the windows open, and I have to close them all because my neighbors are very noisy. And I'm like, I'm just it's fine. I'm just sweating to death. It's okay. I sacrifice a lot for this podcast. <laughs> the things we do for you, listeners. <laughs> uh, I've had, uh, yeah, it's been hot enough that we've been sleeping with the bedroom window open a bit. But that meant that, because um, obviously it's, it's just been the bank holiday weekend. Because of that, everyone's confused about what day bin day is. So oh God. at midnight, half past midnight and 1am, it sounded like people were auditioning for Stomp. <laughs> people were putting their bins out that way. People are putting their bins out, but also the people over the road from me, they have really long driveways. So them taking the bins out sounds like a 10 minute drum solo. <laughs> it was so loud. It went on for so long. And I'd like, I'd just fallen into that like lovely level of sleep where like you're sleepy and you switch the light off and you just go and it's perfect. And then a fucking bin started and I oh my God. <laughs> woke me up and I was livid, absolutely livid. <laughs> And like at one point, it sounded like somebody was tap dancing on top of our dustbin. It sounded that close. And so at one point, I like looked out of the window in my PJs and saw somebody there with their bins, just like oh, for fuck's sake, because they'd clearly like woken up at midnight or like <laughs> half past twelve to be like the bins, <laughs> the bins. Oh, God. But yeah, nightmare. <laughs> the things you have to worry about when you live in a house. We do not have that issue in a flat. <laughs> just... Yeah, we never had to think about bin day before. <laughs> What day is bin day? Just out of curiosity. Uh, bin day is a Wednesday morning, so you put them out on Tuesday night, and it alternates. This is riveting stuff, listen. Um, <laughs> it alternates between, so you get to do recycling every week, and then the black bins for general waste is every other week, and then we've got like a separate little bin just for food and food waste. Wow. So many bins. There's a lot of bins. Yeah. But at the moment, what we really want is a garden waste bin, because we've been doing the garden, and we can't apply for one because the council's not doing them during this time. They're not, like, offering out bins. I'm just so jealous you've got a garden. Like, I I want to, like, shout at you for having a garden, but then I'm like, it's not Rachel's fault that she's got a garden. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> I'm really glad that we do. It's definitely helped me to stay a bit more sane. Mm-hmm. Although Liam and I did have margaritas on the balcony on, on Sunday when I was feeling a little bit better. And that was really nice because we never go out on the balcony. We, like, yeah, once you do it, you're like, oh, 
this is easier than I thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like why yeah. is it difficult to sit on a balcony? I don't know. But we did that and that was lots of fun. So maybe we'll we'll start doing that a bit more. That is true. Have you been up to anything? That question is just... <laughs> no. Is it even worth asking anymore? Uh, oh my gosh. What I've been up to is uh, each week I've scheduled one day, which is for post office and supermarket. I do them both in one go. I've been doing a heck, a heck of a lot of queuing. Oh, love a queue. Very respectful, two metres apart queuing. And that's been where I've gotten my sunshine each week. Because fortunately, the weather's been nice enough that when I have done my queues, I have uh, queued in the sun and like used the time. I queued for an hour yesterday for the post office. Wow, that is a long time. With bananas. Um, but I just rang my mum, caught up with my mum on the phone. So that was really nice. What else have I been doing? I've just been squirreled away. I, no significant thing in my life has happened aside from subscribing for Disney Plus and binge watching a lot of TV. Yeah. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> What's new? Literally nothing. Nothing much. Yeah. Um. What did I do? I've just been ill. Like that's taken up most oh, of my time. Buddy. I know. Um. Liam and I did watch Freaky Friday on Mon- Sunday on Monday and bloody love that film. It's the Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis version excellent it's got some great music uh, so that was fun and then i've just been playing a lot of animal crossing doing a lot of sleeping doing a lot of interview editing from our interview last week oh yeah you you did the hard slog so yeah through recording remotely we've mastered mastered <laughs> the art <laughs> of uh, editing a two-track recording instead mm-hmm. of a one-track recording and so for some reason we we're like let's jump in the deep end and had to Poor Faye had to edit a four-track recording. It's fine, I got there in the end. And I think it sounded good. Yeah, and if you haven't had a listen, go and have a little listen. We chatted oh, to... Oh, what a great segue. <laughs> Segways. <laughs> the one thing most people can't do right now. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, we did a really lovely interview with Dan and Carleen, who are the casting directors of the TV show. And it was just really great to talk to them. And uh, you can have a little listen. We put that out last week please do yeah they were so nice like the nicest people they even asked us a bunch of questions which i was like oh that's yeah, so cute you, you care what i think <laughs> yeah right and yeah they were so sweet and so many amazing stories that we would have never known otherwise so it's definitely worth having to listen to if you're a fan of the tv show and yes i know you're all gonna ask we did ask them about lee scoresby and they did tell me about lynn and i loved it What is your demon this week? Oh, good question. Well, as you may know, there's a neighbourhood fox that keeps coming to our garden, who I'm a little bit obsessed with because she's really cute. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I want my demon to be a fox this week because it seems like prime time for foxes because like maybe it's just that I'm home more, that I'm seeing her more. Maybe. It's wildlife seems to be absolutely loving this time when everybody's not driving around or doing cars or commuting or being busy like... All I seem to see is like thriving wildlife. And so I think if my demon was a fox, it would bloody love life right now. It would just go and hang out in the garden and it'd like roll around in the sun. It'd be great. That's a good choice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. What would yours be? Mm, I think I'm going to steal yours and be uh, like a little grumpy house cat because (laughs) that's all I've done is sleep or lay on the sofa and I haven't left the house since... Well, for like four or five days, I think I've just been sleeping like 20 hours a day. So that very house cat. That would be me. I like it. Yeah, that would be me. I have such envy of everyone with house cats right now and house dogs. Yeah. Oh, same. Yeah. 
Um, I jumped around there asking what a demon is, but maybe we can move it and place it somewhere else. But I am going to say Melissa. So if you remember last episode, Melissa uh, messaged us on Facebook and said, my book doesn't have the horrible John Four hammer on and don't worry, I'm not going to make Rach read it out again. Please don't. Because <laughs> I, I don't think she'll get through it. But we asked Melissa what version of the books does she have and she told us it. she's reading it on Kindle and it's the Kindle Omnibus Edition. So I don't know if any of you guys listening also have that edition and also don't have the hammer on and Melissa and anyone else, please let us know of any other differences. We love to find these things out. We're nitpickers. <laughs> we are. We love it. And yeah, we do. So we got an email from a new listener called Imogen. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Imogen. Yeah. And you all know that we bloody love an email. We bloody love an email. We do. And Imogen told us that um, they just discovered the podcast and have been listening after Christmas, which is great. Thank you for your kind words. They are actually a student at Oxford. Yeah. So she wanted to tell us a little bit more about Oxford and, and like kind of clarify on a couple of things that we'd said in previous episodes. She said that, I don't know how well either of you know the area, but one of my favourite things about the books is how accurate they are to a version of that world. In most scenes set in Oxford, I could tell you exactly where on the street the character is standing. It's described in such detail. And then she goes on to say that she visited a couple of those places and I'm not going to say what they are because they're a bit spoilery, but it just sounds amazing. And she says, also, I can confirm that we have a lot of fancy formal dinners like you mentioned in an earlier episode. My college doesn't call them formals or make you wear a gown because we're cool and progressive in brackets for an Oxford college lol. Uh, but, I've seen, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been to lots of the colleges of friends and it can be pretty fun, but weird to have to dress up fancy and then throw on my gown on top of the outfit. And then she said, Google Oxford commoners gown and Oxford scholars gown to get a sense of what it looks like. Um, and I did. And I can't really imagine like putting on an outfit that you really like and then like throwing one of those on top. Well, maybe we'll, we'll post it at one of those Google searches on our Instagram so everyone else can see how odd that must be. <laughs> yes, we will. Uh, but yes, yeah, thank you so much, Imogen, for your email. We love anything like that. Any any email anyway, you all know that we love them. But anything that gives us like a bit more information about the books or even just like your stories with the books, like how you've come to them, etc. Feel free to email us anytime. Uh, we're her.materialspod at gmail.com. And I guarantee if you do email us, uh, one of us will WhatsApp the other one saying, oh my God, we got an email. Oh my God, we got an email. <laughs> Because that's what happens every time. <laughs> On the topic of how well either of us know Oxford, I would say I've probably been to Oxford a grand total of like five times in my life, I think. Maybe more. I have distinct memories of going as a smallish child and going on the river, attempting to go like rowing or punting. Going to some kind of a museum with a stuffed dodo and a wax figure. <laughs> of Charles Darwin and then I my one of my close friends from back home went to uni there so I visited her a couple of times one of my other close friends from uni lived there for a period of time and she got engaged and we had her engagement party in Oxford and her partner his 30th birthday party was in Oxford so I've been to Oxford for lots of lovely celebratory events it's just I, I really love Oxford it's really great I went once on for a long weekend with my partner so I've been a few times but I have never been with an aim to visit all the spots from the His Dark Materials books. So it's definitely on our list as a pair of podcasters slash book readers to 
go and do the His Dark Materials tour and try and see all of Lyra's favourite spots. Yay. And I have never been to Oxford before. So I'm excited. So sorry, I'll, I'll tell you, you'll be like, oh, Rachel be a pro. She can show me around. Mm-mm, I have no internal compass. <laughs> I will get us lost. But I might find the good ice cream shop. So <laughs> uh, I have a pretty good internal compass. So maybe I can like balance us out in that way. Yeah. <laughs> even though I've never been. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I think I'll we'll work see. it out. It's fine. We'll get some Oxford pros to show us around. It'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good idea. I really want to go. Oh, okay. Shall we begin? Let's get into it. Last chapter, Lyra and Yorick brought Tony, the demonless boy, back to the Egyptians where he sadly passed away. Lyra learned more about the bears and their strength when she fenced with Yorick. This chapter, the Egyptians are attacked by an unseen enemy when stopping to rest. Lyra is kidnapped and taken away by two Samoyed hunters. They drop her off at Bolvanger where she meets more missing children and learns that Mrs. Coulter is coming in two days' time. Bum bum bum! So, we start this chapter and John Farr and Father Coram are worried that they've seen and heard nothing of Mrs. Coulter, uh, but they don't want to let Lyra know. But also Lyra's pretty worried as well. And she thinks about her often. Yeah, we get to know that she's pretty speedily already thinking of Lord Asriel as father, but that she could never feel that way about Mrs. Coulter. Mrs. Coulter was never mother. It says that mostly it's because of the monkey demon, who we know is a little monkey prick. He is a little monkey prick. And who Pan hates because of the way that he was so brutal to him and that Lyra felt doesn't have a trust for the monkey because of the way he pried into her secrets. But I also think a major part of it is she's known Uncle Asriel kind of her whole life. He's been checking in as this like father-ish, distant though he may be, figure her whole life. And Mrs. Coulter is a complete stranger who within the space of months went from this like mesmerising, alluring person that she desperately wanted to be like and be with to a really horrific, villainous character that does these horrible things and that she has no trust for. Mm. Do you think that there's some... I can't help... When I read this, I couldn't help but think there's also some kind of internal misogyny going on here because we know that Azriel's been a part of Lyra's life, like you said, for a long time, but also, he's, from what we've heard, he's trying to, like, shit her entire... Like, mostly her entire <laughs> life. Like, he, yeah. like, nearly broke her arm in the first chapter and from the way that they interacted with each other, it didn't really feel like he had any kind of interest in Lyra at all. He just kind of belittled her. And obviously, I'm not saying that Lyra should think of Mrs. Coulter as a mum, because obviously Mrs. Coulter, from what we've seen, is is also a pretty evil character, but she seems very quick to forgive Asriel and not very quick to forgive Mrs. Coulter. I think it's kind of two sides of the same coin as well, though, because we've seen Mrs. Coulter finds it very easy to perform a feeling. She was very good at being very sweet to Lyra when she wanted Mm. to be and could turn on a dime and be like, really really horrible and vicious to her with the way that in the cocktail party that whole chapter but Asriel is consistently a bit of a dick and quite gruff but I wonder if there's more of a it comes from a place of being a man who's generally uncomfortable around emotion whereas Mrs Coulter even if she was uncomfortable around it is very good at performing it perhaps he's just Mm. not good at performing emotive things I don't know Uh, this is we had some tweets recently that were like you guys are so harsh on Asriel you're never team Asriel 
And so I have been trying. Because when we started out, I was... I wasn't team Asriel, but I was... Um, I feel like I've taken you down a dark path of Asriel here. <laughs> I don't hate him, but I do, through this read, see a lot more of Lyra's naivety in the way that she's so quick to trust him when we see how mean he is to her. But I also think she does have more reason to trust him because he's been a more consistent figure in her life than Mrs. Coulter, who is technically a stranger. Mm. No, yeah, I agree with that. And my thing as well is that obviously I dislike Azrael because of what he's he's, sh- he's been shown to us so far. Like if mm. in the future things change, then I am at liberty to change my mind. I am just going off what <laughs> we have read in the book so far. And I think he's been an asshole so far. Like, I just can't... What do you want me to say? That's my thoughts. (laughs) Fair play. Fair play, yeah. What what I was going to say about Mrs. Coulter as well, um, and you mentioned her, like, performing, do you think that because Asriel's kind of been, like, a straight-up dick to Lyra for, like, a whole life, she kind of appreciates that more than somebody, like, putting on a show and, like you said, like, turning on a dime and not knowing where she stands with that particular person? So if you think about Mrs. Coulter... Lyra really trusted her and thought she was a nice person and wanted to like be like her and do everything with her and then all of a sudden she realized that wow it's she's not what she thought she was and that I guess she felt more betrayed potentially by that sudden change in demeanor whereas like she's used to the scholars who are awkward around emotion and Asriel who has this fiery temper but that seems to be the most predictable thing about him yeah so Maybe it's just the unpredictability. Mm. Oh my god, wow, we're digging deep in like, it's like the yeah. third line of this, of this paragraph, <laughs> of this chapter. I'm just uh, delving right in. <laughs> but yeah, I felt like I should uh, attempt to get my head around some defence of Asriel and Lyra's relationship to him, because we do hark on it quite a lot. Look, Rich, like I said, I'm just waiting for him to do okay. something good. <laughs> Haven't seen it so far. That's, That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but yeah, she's still thinking about Mrs. Coulter, so... Yeah. She knows that they're probably, even though Coulter's not been in sight for days, they've heard nothing of her. Yeah. The spy flies and the way that they were sent after her is evidence of the fact that they are probably still looking. Yeah. We get this ominous line of, uh, but when the enemy did strike, it wasn't Mrs. Coulter. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, it's like a little, <laughs> we've like called out a bunch of these, but it's like a little teeny tiny glimpse into the future again. Because like, yeah. we're not quite there yet. We will be there in like the next couple of lines, but it's interesting that they, that Philip Pullman has put that in rather than just going straight into the attack. Yeah, it's like, but heads up, something's about to happen. Yeah. And I do like that. I think it has a really, um, a really good like impact on a reader to be like, oh shit, shit is about to go down and we know it's about to go down. He's like, oh, I'll just, I'll just read a bit closer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, we learned that they were stopping to rest. John Ford hoped that Lee might find some gas for his uh, smaller balloon. I'm like, he bloody loves it, doesn't he, John Ford? Every chance he gets. He just, he desperately wants to go on this balloon. <laughs> <laughs> Every chance he's get, he gets, he's like, can we do it now? It's like Lyra. Yeah. <laughs> I like it though. I like I, it. Gives me a nice glimpse into kind of some of the childish excitability that I would love to read into John Farr as this like big stoic hulking character. Yeah, but he just really wants to go in a balloon. <laughs> I mean, it's fair. I would definitely also want to go in the balloon. So yeah. Also, just this revelation that Lee's brought, he's not just got one balloon. He's got two. He's got two. <laughs> Should bring two. He's got two he balloons. Must, he must have so much shit to lug around with him all the time. He's probably got the biggest sledge. Of everybody mm. to take stuff on. Yeah. Lee seems to be really good at kind of 
keeping an eye on the weather as you would expect him to have to do as an aeronaut Mm -hmm. and he decides that he knows that there's going to be mist and fog and you know and to be sure a thick mist comes down and this kind of makes me think like is it just the weather or is something a little bit spooky happening Ooh, do you know what i hadn't thought of that but potentially yeah Yeah. just because like it's the mist comes down they can't see anything and then with no warning at all a volley of arrows flies out of the dark Mm mm-hmm and it just seems like the fight that's about to happen is so one-sided Yeah, that part of me is like, is somebody in the company of attackers able to, in some way, manipulate the weather to cause that mist? Or are they just very good at taking advantage mm. of the opportunity that the weather has given them? Yeah, maybe. Like, have they been being followed? The thing is, right, so I'm going to like kind of skip ahead, but forgive me. Mm-hmm. So... We still don't know. So we know that the, the Samoyed people took Lyra... But we don't actually know who all these people were that were doing the attack because we're, I can only assume anyway that it wasn't just so that they could get to Lyra. They, I don't think they were going to do that whole thing just to take a child, especially when they don't even know who that child was. I think if they'd have known it was Lyra, then probably, like if Mrs. Coulter was behind it, then sure. But we get to the end of this chapter and we're not like really sure who they were. Yeah, I get the impression... From the guys that have taken Lyra, that they are just opportunistic bandits, kind of mm. a vibe. But it's it's very hard to know. Yeah, there must be a lot of them then, if it is them, because there there were only two of them that took Lyra, and they couldn't have two of them couldn't have shot down so many arrows. Definitely, there's a lot of people, and then we're about to get a really interesting and intense battle scene laid out before us mm-hmm. that is made all the more kind of stressful to read because of the fog and because of the mist and seeing it from Lyra's perspective it's a lot of sounds and then only occasional glimpses of the fight that's occurring because of the the thickness of this fog so I really like it (laughs) yeah this entire chapter is fucking stressful like so stressful (laughs) there's not like one calm bit in it there's no like respite it's all just pure stress I was like reading it when I was like like I said I wasn't feeling well I was like oh this is too much happy quarantine everybody here's some light (laughs) relief in the form of the most stressful chapters of your favorite books god god (laughs) everything's just lining up wrong isn't it like for us and buffering the vampire slayer as well get we listen to that we love that podcast and they're getting up to some really intense episodes of buffy and it's like why is everything just lined up wrong (laughs) we just need a monster of the week moment please oh god yeah um there's actually some really nice well not nice but like kind of like eerie like haunting descriptions in this bit with the um the arrow attack so three egyptian men went down at once and died so silently that no one heard a thing only when they slumped clumsily across the dog traces all lay unexpectedly still did the nearest men notice what was happening and then it was already too late because more arrows were flying at them and I just can't imagine somebody dying so quietly, especially in like a what you imagine to be like a bit of a battle scene, really. Uh, Philip Pullman does that really well, actually. He kind of subverts what you think is going to happen. And although the battle still kind of happens, if you can call it a battle, because like you said, it's quite one-sided. In my mind, that's not what I would expect a fight, and I say that in inverted commas, to, to break out, like somebody dying silently. Have you read The Hobbit? Yes. So you know, basically at the end, where it's like, the Battle of the Five Armies... And it's just Bilbo gets knocked out and wakes up and it's done. Yeah. It's kind of that. It's like, there's this big fight happening, but Lyra's been kidnapped so she can't see it. So we he doesn't have to write it. It's fine. Yeah. It's like, look, it's happening, right? I'm not going to write it. It's fine. And I kind of love that. <laughs> just assume it's happened. Like, whatever. <laughs> a 
assume I wrote it and it was great, but then you don't actually have to read it. <laughs> God. Yeah, so it, like you just mentioned, it's all very quiet and confusing. They can hear the like arrows like knocking the wood, like hitting the wood, which I think is a really nice description. Yeah, it's like irregular thudding and knocking sound. Yeah, and John Farr's the first to realise what's going on, um, and he like starts shouting orders. One of the lines that gets me is, cold hands and stiff limbs move to obey as yet more arrows flew down like rain, straight rods of rain tipped with death. Yeah. Ah, that's kind of says it all because it's like they are not expecting it they have been walking for hours they are cold and imagine if like you're coming to the end of resting from a long day you've been walking all day you're frozen to the bone and then someone's like right star jumps yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna be pretty slow to that's get true. to it the panic and the fear that's involved on top of that as well as trying to be nimble when wearing your big gloves and your big coats it just it adds to the to the fear and the helplessness mm-hmm. of the situation as well because they are it's very it isn't it is an ambush they are very surprised and a little bit outmatched yeah right now so pan here's what's going on and uh before uh, before Lyra does, and he turns into a leopard and knocks her over so that she doesn't get hit, which is very clever. Well done, Pam. Mm-hmm. And then Yorick leaps into the fog. She heard a mighty roar and the clang and scrape of Yorick Bernison's armour as he leapt, fully clad over the sledges and into the fog. That was followed by screams, snarling, crunching and tearing sounds, great smashing blows, cries of terror and roars of bearish, bearish fury. Bearish fury! <laughs> as he laid them to waste. When I first read this, I was like, oh, so the people who shooting the arrows and maybe they could be quite far away really but the fact that it says that Yorick is like tearing and crunching at people makes me think that they're, they've like infiltrated but we know that Yorick can move quite far quite fast That's as true. well and I imagine his tearing and crunching is pretty loud so maybe I don't know it's hard to tell how far away they are and it kind of mentions immediately after that that they actually haven't seen an enemy yeah. figure yet. The Egyptians are swarming to defend the sledges. But, but as far as Lyra could see, that was actually making them better targets. I imagine that's true. If the snow is, re- if the mist is really dense, you're going to see the biggest things there. And if these sledges are great big mounds of sledges, you're going to aim for the dark mass in the mist. Yeah, very so true. It makes sense. And then the Egyptians seem to be losing because uh, they can't find it, can't find the guns. And like more men are falling. John Farr gets hit. Oh, don't! <sighs> I can't. I can't. And and then Lyra thinks it's her fault. Yeah. And she says what she says. Oh, John Farr, you didn't foresee this, and I didn't help you. Like it's her. It's not your responsibility to help him, Lyra. You're just a child. I know. And like she can't be on that lithiometer every minute of every day. Like if you don't know what to ask it, then why would you ask it anything? So it's yeah. Also, her little hands have probably been really cold. It's probably bloody freezing to get the alethiometer out and try to actually work it. Because I imagine you can't do it in mittens. Yeah. Lyra, let yourself off the hook. This one isn't on you for once. (laughs) Bless her little soul. Then another demon jumps out of Pan and knocks him down. And uh, that knocks the breath out of Lyra. And then this is where she gets taken, isn't it? So hands were grabbing her, stopping her from screaming, like throwing her around and then pushing her down into the snow. And then I was like thinking to myself, are they doing that on purpose to like disorientate her? Like, because it sounds like they're throwing her up in the air and then pushing her down into the snow. That In my brain, they're either doing it to like disorientate her, to fight somebody off that's maybe trying to pull her back or that 
they're just trying to hurt her. Like, I don't know why they're doing that. I wonder if it's even just because she's so disorientated by the whole situation that even if all they're doing is grabbing her up, passing her from one person to another and getting away, it probably feels like she's being wanged around all over the place because it's so disorientating. Yeah, it was just a bit where it said that they pushed her down into the snare that threw me off a little bit. Yeah, it was also, they stifle her cry with foul-smelling mittens. I don't enjoy that. No, thank you. But I think maybe it's them also, if these people are just raiders and they're identifying items of value in this party that they've attacked, Mm -hmm. and they've gone... We know we can get money for a child, as we'll find out later. The idea of them pushing her down into the snow, that's what Pan just did to protect her. Mm. So I wonder if they're duck- they're like running a short way, ducking for cover and running another oh, short yeah, way maybe. to get back to their sledges. Yeah. And that pushing her down is like stopping the valuable asset from being damaged. Yeah, that's true. That would make sense. And then a hood's shoved over her head and... This whole thing is very scary. They're really, <laughs> I don't like it yeah, at all. they're really brutal with her. Like it says when they yeah. tie her hands that they, what does it say that they pull her arms until they like she feels her shoulders crack. Yeah. yeah. Oh god. Ew. Horrible. She's shouting for Yorick. Oh. She's shouting out for him, but she couldn't tell if he could hear her. He's obviously in the midst of this fight and this fray, and I don't know how good his hearing is, but it's kind of a cry in vain a little bit. Yeah, and it really makes Lyra feel like it's the first time, really. That it's made me think, oh, she's just a little girl and she's scared. She's so helpless. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, before she knows what's happening, she's kind of already being whisked away and Mm -hmm. she feels the sledge moving off. And then, so this whole little exchange between Lyra and Pan. So she's been like basically lashed onto this shed. This shed? This sled. (laughs) She's been lashed onto this sled and tied up and she feels like she can't breathe because her hood's so tight around her face. And Pan comes along and helps her to breathe and he, like, helps keep her calm and has a little chat. And I just think, god damn, if I was ever to get kidnapped, I'd be so pissed off that I didn't have a demon. Oh, right, I know, fucking hell. (laughs) Because in that situation when you're panicking and it's literally, like, the worst thing that could happen, having someone there that's to, like, talk through the situation with, I think would be so comforting. Definitely. Yeah, there's nothing worse than feeling alone, never mind when you've been bloody kidnapped. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. It's also, it's someone that's listening to too much to crime, it's just me being like, oh my god, imagine how many of the true crime podcast stories I've listened to would be different if people had demons. Yeah. Because you just have to have a completely different method of kidnapping someone, because if their demon could change into something that could bite through the ropes, then you're screwed. So many more things to think about when you're trying to kidnap someone with a demon. Yeah. <laughs> do you would you have to make like a if if their demon was something small like a little bird or something would you have to do like a little tiny gag for their mouth and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But then how you how you can't touch someone else's demon because that's a taboo. Oh, yeah. So you'd have to get your demon to put it on. I guess that's the thing like if you had like a mean monkey like Colter you just he would just shut up where the, the demon was. Oh god. Okay, I'm st- I'm going to stop making kidnapping cute. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just anything and you just involve animals like, no, oh, it's adorable. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. You mentioned like her at Lyra and Pan like having a little chat in this moment, but Pan's a bit sassy about John Farr. He's like, I saw him fall, but he should have been ready for this sort of attack. We know that. It's like, all right, Pan. You sassy little bitch. I wonder if it's his way of reassuring her though, just being like, Oh, he should have been ready for it. He probably was. I don't know. He's probably ready to get shot with an arrow. <laughs> 
maybe. <laughs> you don't know. I think Pan's That's a little bit pissed out. off. I'm not going to lie. It, maybe he's showing that part of Lyra that mm. is when something like that happens, you start thinking of who to blame. And maybe he currently is like landing on John Farr because... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd be blaming the blokes that kidnapped me, but... <laughs> <laughs> not bad. Yeah. And then Lyra says again that they should have helped him. He then tells her to pretend to be unconscious, which Pan, you're just being so clever in this chapter. Uh, she can hear a whip and the dog's pulling the sledge and I was immediately like, don't whip those doggers, you leave those doggers alone. She says that they're going to take them to the gobblers and she thinks about the word severed and gets scared. Because of course now yeah. we know what the gobblers do because we saw it last chapter and it was horrible. Yeah. Also, it's just that classic thing of like the worst thing has just happened, and your mind immediately leaps to the next worst thing that could happen. Yeah. So that's like, ugh. yeah. Thanks, thanks, brain. Yeah. And then, pa- oh, this is this is quite cute. Uh, Pan says he'll fight, and Lyra's like, "I'll kill him. I'll kill him." And then Yorick will crush him to death. And I realised I just said that's cute, but maybe that's just the sort of thing that I think is cute. It's not. It's. Uh, it feels like. Something someone's been mean to you in the playground and you're like, my dad will beat yeah. up your dad. <laughs> it's like that. It's like, my bear will get him. Yeah. Oh. It kind of shows how much she believes in this bond that she's got with Yorick. Mm. Yeah. That they've kind of obviously developed over that time when they were fencing and he clearly finds her faintly amusing. And she's got a lot of faith in that bond of being like, yeah, he'd defend me. He'd get him. Yeah. I think that's sweet because she barely knows the guy. <laughs> so they think that there are days about a day's ride from Bullbanger um and then someone pulls off her hood and she sees an Asian face with black eyes and a hint of satisfaction especially at Pan and then I was like ew I don't want to see any satisfaction on your stupid face stupid man kidnapper yeah boo 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 although kidnapper who speaks at least three languages a well-educated kidnapper yeah good for you I guess (laughs) good for you mate yeah, so he sits her up, but she keeps falling over sideways because her hands are tied, which I can't help but find as like a kind yeah. of cute, funny image. So yeah, he switches to have her feet tied up instead, and she realizes that there's two men, and that the way that they're like moving and like treating the sled and treating the environment around them shows that they know it, mm. and she kind of like can see that they're so much more at home in this land than the Egyptians ever could be, yeah. and it kind of reinforces that disadvantage that the Egyptians are at in this battle that she's just left behind. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is a bit scary. There's a bit of before that as well where I want to call out Pan being great again, because Pan hisses at them. The man's got a wolverine demon and Pan just hisses at it, and uh, the demon snarls back and Pan just doesn't even flinch. Like, hell yeah, Pan. <laughs> Love it. We want to see this. We love to see it. So yeah, the guy tries a couple of different languages on her and ends up at English. Mm-hmm. Pan bristles, um, but she kind of knows what he means. So Pan's very much on the defensive, but the fact that he's asking her what her name is means that they've not kidnapped her on the commands of Coulter. Yeah. They, they don't know who she is when they've taken her. So she immediately, the Lyra that we know and love, <laughs> jumps to her only form of defense right now, which is lying her ass off. Yeah. And I love it. And she's so fast on her feet. And she's like, oh, my name's Lizzie Brooks. Which, again, I love. She's chosen a name that begins with the same first letters as her name. So it's easy to remember. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Mm. I like that. When you lie, you're supposed to think of something that's, like, adjacent to the truth. So it's Amazing. easier to remember. This bit reminds me of Harry Potter. Ah, uh, drink. <laughs> so in the seventh book, 
where they're in the uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are in the forest of Dean, and they get um, taken in by I can't remember what the people. Are. God, it's been too long since I read Harry Potter. But um, the Death Eaters, no. Mm, it's like the people that are sent out looking for like stragglers. Um, oh, it's the the werewolf guy, right? Yes, yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, oh god, I hate that guy. He's so scary. There's like a weird line in that when they're talking about that werewolf guy, where they're like, "Oh, he like has a thing." They insinuate that like, he's a paedophile, basically, because he yeah. bites children. Yeah, which I don't like. That is not cool. No. Fenrir Greyback. Yes, that's it. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of that because like Harry says that his name. I can't remember what he says his name. Does his name's Neville Longbottom. He says he's Dudley Dursley, I think. Yeah, reminds me of that. Your episode of Harry Potter segue done and dusted. <laughs> it, would, it wouldn't be an episode if we didn't find some way of linking it back. But yeah, you, picking on something that you know or someone's name that you know, I think is quite a... <gasps> he says Vernon Dudley. Calls himself Vernon Dudley. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we got it. But yeah, she's very good kind of immediately coming to a name, which we know that she's good at that already because she did it in chapter six the throwing nets when mm. the creepy guy at the creepy coffee guy, stand yeah. asks her name she says it's Alice yeah so she's good at com- she's good at coming up with an alias real fast yeah she's got loads just in a little file of facts in her brain just like hmm, what name shall I use today yeah she's just got a little file of facts of lies and I love it <laughs> and the, she kind of asks the guy who they are which mm-hmm. I find was interesting that he's willing to answer like you'd be sub- yeah you'd think that he wouldn't but he kind of explains that they're the Samoyed peoples and they're hunters mm-hmm. And what I found interesting about Samoyed is it's kind of coming from the same place as Pullman brings a lot of stuff, which is like, if you would, if you Google Samoyed, it just comes up with the dog breed because it's a type of dog that's bred in the area. But Samoyed comes from the word that people used to use, but now people would be more likely to say Samoyedic or Samoyedic. Hmm kind of refers to a few different groups of native peoples in Siberia and Russia and that kind of region. Mm -hmm. And um, it's kind of another way of Pullman. He likes to do this thing where he picks kind of like an older or outdated term for something that gives the world that like slightly otherworldly feel. Mm. And that made me also Google because they keep referring to the Tartars a lot of the time. Yeah. And that's also kind of taken from something else. It's just, it's just interesting the way that he kind of picks these like slightly outdated or older words to mm. reference something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That just gives it that like our world but not feel. Mm. Do you think then, because you mentioned, what chapter was it? Was it one last chapter or the chapter before? And it was the Sabers people and they were Siberian and they all had Wolverine yeah. demons. Do we think that these are the same people could be yeah one of the kidnappers had a wolverine demon we didn't get to hear what the other one's demon is did they all have wolverine demons or did they all have wolf demons because maybe they're just like closely linked oh maybe yeah i'm not sure actually good podcasting (laughs) good good podcasting i could just look at my notes from previous weeks i could do that we'll just leave it on a question and then somebody will tweet us yeah i mean that's fine let's do that So she asks them where they're taking her, mm-hmm. and she's and they're like, "Nice place, nice peoples. You have Panzerbjörner? because <laughs> they're just like, "Yeah, yeah, we're taking you somewhere nice. Tell us about the bear, you've got a fucking bear." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> her immediate response is like, "For protection." She's, she's so fast on her feet mm. at lying, and I love it. I really hate though how they're like, "Ha ha ha, we're better than a bear. We got you anyway." It's like, "Fuck off, ew." <laughs> Larry does a really good job of kind of holding on to her shit during that. Yeah. Um. And also a really good job of, again, staying on her feet and um, 
like thinking fast on her feet and mm-hmm. carrying on the line kind of they're like quizzing her about her people and she's like oh with 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 traders yes yeah yeah <laughs> and kind of like not letting anything go which i think is just in that situation kind of her one line of defense is kind of the lies that she can tell and like being able to deceive someone or into thinking she's less significant than she is or more significant than she is like i think it's a really great um defense mechanism because she yeah. is so helpless right now yeah definitely and we um, see it again don't we in the like the end of the chapter she like kind of carries on being this lizzie brooks character and i suppose works in her favor for the most part yeah in a, a strange way so her and pan lie back down and they're worried about john far being dead and then i was like oh my god what about Father Coram? If anything happens to him, I'm going to fucking riot. Like, <laughs> he just needs to be, okay, I can't, yeah. can't deal with this shit. Surely he's one of the people that the people around him will rush to protect because they know that he can't protect himself. <sighs> I really hope so. I would hope. I hope so. He's oh. seen things. He can confirm for himself. He got this. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't even make me think it, Faye. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not the time to be thinking about this at all. Yeah. Um, so they uh, they wonder like, will they all be able to find her and Pan? And she starts to feel sorry for herself. And I was like, I would have been fucking feeling sorry myself, sorry for myself from the very beginning of this. And she's like, oh, right. she's just started feeling sorry for herself. I'm like, mate, I would have been there. I would have been there before I even got kidnapped. The sorriest. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been feeling sorry for myself because it was a bit cold. Like, I'm like, it's too cold here. Definitely. <laughs> I would be the worst expeditioner. I get oh, grumpy yeah. when I'm cold and hungry. So that's like a majority of what this mission is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. So the man gives her some reindeer meat to chew. She feels a little bare. And I was like, you didn't have to do that. That's a yeah. weird thing. Although apparently it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She feels for the elisiometer. Um, and takes out the spy flight in and shoves it down into her boot. But again, it's another little like mystery Lyra plan that we don't get to find out about. We still don't know what this tin is for. And now we don't necessarily know why she's hiding it. Yeah. Tell, tell me about this tin, Lyra. Yeah, we need to know. <laughs> tell me her plans. Stop, stop dragging it out. We need, we need the information. I find it interesting because she does all this stuff and she closes her eyes. And the fear had made her exhausted and soon she slipped uneasily into sleep. But I'm thinking, would you be able to sleep in that situation? Or would or would the situation exhaust you so much that you had to sleep? Like, I, I legit can't think where I'd land on it. I, when I, I wrote a note that was very similar, was like, I would a million percent not be able to fucking sleep in that situation. Absolutely yeah. not. But... Although you do like sleeping on a moving object. I do! So maybe I would be <laughs> lulled to sleep, but... If the fear has made her exhausted, then maybe she didn't really have a choice. Maybe she was that tired that she kind of had to sleep or like kind of not passed out. But you know, when you're so, so tired that you just can't keep yourself awake. Yeah. I just can't imagine even thinking about sleeping in that situation. No, I'm the same. But it's kind of, we find through this chapter as well, sleeping is kind of a way of elapsing some time to get us from A to B as well, which I quite like. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because um, they're like, eh, we've just worked out it's like a day's ride, and we don't want to write a day's worth of her being tied up and miserable. Yeah, so let's just have her fall asleep, which is probably for the best. She wakes up when she notices the motion of the sledge has changed because it suddenly loads smoother, and she opens her eyes to like really bright lights, mm-hmm. um, which must be really surreal yeah. considering you've just been in this like 
vast open wilderness for so long yeah. and then this like bright ambaric light must be really surreal to kind of see and also fill you with a sense of dread because you, you know what's got some ambaric lights the station yeah <laughs> yes yeah so they go through a metal gate and into like a big empty space um, and they stop outside a lower building and Lyra kind of realizes actually it's quite a few buildings that are like linked potentially linked together by tunnels but they're all covered in snow at one side a stout metal mast had a familiar look though she couldn't say what it reminded her of do you know what she's talking about i can't remember no i can't either i I cannot remember i don't know how it's relevant no i don't and like i did like have a flick back through but like i think i i nothing springs to mind at all i had a brief thought about whether it's something that relates to anything in chapter two was the equipment behind the man in the photograph there's all this like scientific equipment could uh, there have been like a lightning rod maybe part of that that looks familiar from those photographs yeah i can't remember if it's mentioned that that's if that's in the photograph but i can think like that's kind of the only time she's seen something like that maybe yeah that is true oh my god she's cracked it let's let's skip back to chapter two Asriel puts the first slide frame in. A circular photogram in sharp black and white appeared on the screen. It had been taken at night under a full moon and it showed a wooden hut in the middle distance, its walls dark against the snow that surrounded it and lay thickly on the roof. Beside the hut stood an array of philosophical instruments which looked to Lyra's eye like something from the Ambaric Park on the road to Yarnton. Aerials, wires, porcelain insulators all glittering in the moonlight and thickly covered in frost. So maybe it looks like some of those aerials and wires and things. Yeah, maybe. That sounds like the most valid thing that I can think of right now anyway. Yeah, I can't think of anything else where she's seen like a rod. <laughs> but, do you know? I mean, listeners, if you know, tell us, please. Yeah. If it spoils forward, tell us in an email. <laughs> yes. If it doesn't, at HDMPod. But yeah, that's the only thing I can think of that it could be. Uh, they take her off the sledge and... A door opens in the building and then the one of the kidnappers like pushes her towards the door and the figure at the door could have been a Jordan scholar. He looked at her and in particular he looks at Pan, but it's interesting that he's been described as being, he could have been a Jordan scholar. Yeah, it's a familiar face. It's, uh, I can assume, a Caucasian bloke. Yeah, exactly. The first two questions he asks are really odd because you'd think it would be, do you you speak English? Yes. What's your name? But no. He says, you speak English? And she says, yes. And he says, does your demon always take that form? Yeah. And Lyra's kind of like taken aback. Like, why is he asking about my demon before he even asks who the hell I am, where I've come from, what's going on? Like, yeah, weird. And also for us, a bit creepy. <laughs> so creepy. Yeah. Back off my demon. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird question. And Pan answers it really himself because he changes form. So the guy's like, okay. Yeah, sassy pan. <laughs> and the guy seems satisfied about this, which is Also creepy. Mm, but interesting and creepy, yeah. And he gives the kidnappers some money and they leave. They head inside to this like horrible, bloody metal place, which just, just sounds not very cosy and inviting. I enjoy that it's described as, so the man asks her to come in. And he's clearly impatient to get in because his cold weather clothes aren't as good as hers. He's been outside for like two minutes and he's colder than she is in in all her like yeah. expedition gear. And she's like, mate, I've been outside for like two weeks straight. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've been outside for five minutes. Calm down. Five minutes. He has an English voice 
and he sounds smart and educated, which is probably one of the other reasons why she thinks he could, like, he could be a Jordan scholar. He says that they'll look after her there. This is what uh, what we were alluding to earlier with this, like, Lizzie Brooks character. She decides to play, like, uh, dim-witted. They're, they're in a room with a reception desk that's a bit like hospital. And like I said, it just sounds really, like, not very inviting, like, very brightly lit, very, like, cold with, like, hard edges and, like, horrible clinical yeah and like yeah like hospital like and i think a lot of people out there me included kind of really struggle with a hospital environment Mm. and like it's something about it feels quite foreboding and i think especially for this situation where lyra knows what she's being where she's being taken yeah it is very foreboding to have it described in such a clinical hospitally manner yeah, it kind of definitely adds to the air of threat of the building, and also to the um, kind of all sounds really anonymous. If that makes sense, mm. like it, once you're inside, it could almost be anywhere. Yeah, and there's like no personality to anything, like no distinguishing features. So there's nothing that has been like imprinted on it to make it any kind of place. It just kind of exists on its own, and it's yeah. like Pan tells her to be slow and stupid. And I'm like, she already decided to do that. We just we just heard that. Yeah. I love that he clearly has the thought like seconds after she did. She's like, do you not see what I'm already doing? <laughs> and yeah, there's a group of people that are there talking about her. And the man asks uh, someone called Sister Clara to come and see her. Uh, they head down a corridor where Lyra can hear people eating. There's a description here about Sister Clara. So it says... The nurse was about as old as Mrs. Coulter, Lyra guessed, with a brisk, blank, sensible air. She would be able to stitch a wound or change a bandage, but never to tell a story. Her demon, and Lyra had a moment of strange chill when she noticed, was a little white trotting dog. And after a moment, she had no idea why he had chilled her. Yeah. Yeah. I really like this description of her. And I really love that something has unnerved Lyra and she doesn't really know what it is. Yeah. And I am going to continue to enjoy the descriptions of Sister Clara throughout this chapter for the way that they kind of just leave you feeling a bit confused about her being so boring. (laughs) (laughs) But in in a way that's so odd and interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And I kind of love it. So you're describing the most boring person in the world and yet it's fascinating. Yeah. That she is that boring. And there's something (laughs) off about it. Weird. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Also, I love that it kind of reinforces the fact that she's Sister Clara. Mm-hmm. It's not Nurse Clara. It's not Miss So-and-so. It's It reinforces this like hospital vibe of yeah. like uh, sisters on a ward, but also reinforces the like religious institution vibe as well. Yeah, definitely. Which kind of like reinforces the whole like magisterium thing on top of the hospital thing. Which yeah. Which I quite, I quite like. Yeah. And then Lyra tells Sister Clara that she's 11 and then... I think this is like the first actual hint that we've had at age, right? Obviously, we know that she's a child, but we've never heard an age said. And, we, and it says here that she's been told that she can play or at all, that she seems younger. I love this line. Can I read this line out? Yeah. Lyra had been told that she was small for her age, whatever that meant. It had never affected her sense of her own importance, but she realised she could use it, use the fact now to make Lizzie shy, nervous and insignificant and shrank a little as she went into the room. Don't worry, it never affected her self, sense of self-importance. Don't even worry about it. Why would it? It never would. Nothing could shake Lyra. Classic Lyra. <laughs> Classic. But yeah, it's the first time we've had like an age mentioned, so we know that she's at least older than 11 now, officially. Yes. 
still don't quite know exactly how old she is, but she's definitely older than 11. So Sister Clara, she's not really that bothered about where Lyra had come from. She's not asking any questions. Her and her demon were brisk and blank. And so (laughs) I put a sticker on the description of this room. So in the room they entered, there was a couch and a table and two chairs and a filing cabinet and a glass cupboard with medicines and bandages and a wash basin. As soon as they were inside, the nurse took Lyra's outer coat off and dropped it on the shiny floor. So, probably wondering why I decided to throw that out, but it really reminds me of when I was in primary school and the, like, weird little, like, medical room that they used to have in primary schools and, like, you'd get sent there by a teacher if you weren't feeling well and you'd wait for, like, your mum to come and pick you up or whatever. And I just remember being in there and it being, like, really, like, old and, like, there was, like, a little bed and it was horrible and it had a little sink in the corner and, like, paper towels... And then in a bit, she opens that drawer and it's got the horrible like toys in it that Lyra picks one from. And I remember there being like a bunch of horrible toys in like this like primary school medical room and it just brought back a lot of horrible memories. Yeah, when you had to go for MMR vaccine, it was one of the vaccines that you'd had to have at school, right? And you probably have to go to the school office. Yeah. And they'd be like, do you want to hug the teddy bear while they give you the injection? I have an indignant memory of going for that jab. A girl from my school went in at the same time because they took two people in at a time. Because mm. we were such a small primary school, we didn't have like a medical office or anything. It was just in like the receptionist's mm. office, which had like a nice sofa and stuff for if anyone ever had to go and have a cry or like graze their knee or whatever. The person was like, oh, you can look away if you want. You can hold this teddy if you want. And I was like, no, it's fine. And I like looked away and I was really good. And the girl that was in at the same time as me absolutely lost her shit. And was like crying and crying and crying and screaming and stuff. But then when we left at the same time, she told everyone it was me that had been crying. (gasps) Oh my God, no. She said she was fine. And I was like, oh my God. Indignant childhood memory. Oh my God, it's if. What a dirty little liar. How dare. (laughs) I mean, I get it. (laughs) But I would have been, I would have been fucking pissed off if she'd outraged. Can't believe it. Who is she? (laughs) (laughs) Name and shame. I won't name and shame. Um, Oh my god. Okay. Um, I I went off on a tangent about medical rooms. Before we got to the medical room, I wanted to read one little line about the nurse. And it's just, Lyra's busy preparing answers for all these questions she's going to be asked. But it wasn't only imagination the nurse lacked. It was curiosity as well. And I just find it interesting that that's something that Lyra is observing. and That's a description they've chosen to have Mm. of this nurse is that she lacks both imagination and curiosity. I suppose that's something that is innate in children, right? So with Lyra being a child, I think those are two things that you would attribute to children. And maybe one of the first things that a child of Lyra's age would maybe notice. Yeah. And also I love that everything she says feels... You're going to get Harry Potter reference as well there. Mm. They're in this sinister place, but then this lady is very like prim and proper and says things in a very sweet, buttery manner and is very like comforting, is doing everything very by the book in this sweet, sickly kind of way. And it just makes me, it's it's very umbrage It's very like yeah. secretly evil Ministry of Magic putting a sweet face on things. It's very true. And that's, it. yeah, it feels very Professor umbrage to me and a bit, a bit too sweet. God, have you ever heard a character as much as you hear Umbridge? Fucking hear her so much. Yeah. Oh, I kind of love that she's a cat lady though. She's horrendous. <laughs> Don't care if she loves cat, she's awful. I kind of love how good she is as a villain though. It's oh, yeah. one of those things where you're like, I hate her, but she's bloody brilliant. Yeah. She... As like a piece as a piece of work. <laughs> and she bloody is a piece of work. Yeah. Uh Lyra's made to strip down in a way that makes mm. also makes me feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. In a very like um clinical and medical sense as well. 
in terms of there is no regard for her like modesty or making her feel comfortable at the time they're just like nope take your clothes off dear we need to wash your dirty clothes you need to have a shower and it mentions she's stinky yeah after a few weeks on the road coming back into this into the warmth of the station she's she's pretty ripe yeah and that (laughs) how many of us having been at home for days and days and days on end having not left the house are getting pretty ripe right now oh my god me for one who's who's left it three days four days without showering I definitely have. <laughs> Who's taken a moment to smell themselves and gone, oh, oh, oh God. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, we're all in the same boat here. And if you think it's not you, then I don't know what you're doing with your life. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners at home, don't judge us. You know you've done it. Yeah, we stink here. We can't help it. We're sorry. <laughs> There's literally nobody who's going to judge us because we can't leave the house. <laughs> oh god uh, yeah the bit where they make her strip and she says that she's like she feels resentment and shame i hate that I hate it so much it really got under my skin i hate that they made her do that and it's horrendous mm-hmm. and i just want to call that out a bit more because again it's that thing that i hate people being made to do things they don't want to do and it's horrendous and awful and boo yeah and also that she can't because of the role that she's made for herself in order to protect herself she can't object to it like yeah. she probably would if she was being Lyra in yeah. this moment and that's really the fact that she kind of has to be resigned to it is part of what makes it even more upsetting yeah and then the the nurse before she gets in the shower the nurse asks for the money belt doesn't she and asks what it is after feeling it but then she doesn't really give a shit like Lyra's like oh shit she's gonna take the alethiometer away from me and the nurse is like no you can have it back it's fine because Lyra's like oh it's just a toy it's mine and the nurse is like yeah it's fine you can have it back it kind of reinforces the whole this nurse has no imagination or curiosity because any other grown-up would see an instrument that fancy and maybe try to take it away. Mm. But this person clearly just doesn't care. And I think because maybe Lyra as well is quite clever in this moment to kind of invoke a little bit of emotion when she's like, oh, it's just a toy, but then she's like, and it's mine. The nurse is like, okay, calm down a bit, love, it's fine, you can have it, no one's taking it away from you. Whereas maybe if she'd have just been more casual about it, the woman, like the nurse or Sister Clara might have taken it away. Yeah. Have you got a a line coming up next that's to do with your demon watch? I know that you do love to point out demons. I do. And things that that they do do. They do do. On my demon watch, uh, we learn here that if you're a person that's dull, then your demon's going to be dull as well. Because Pan is trying also not to be dull, like with Lyra in the shower and stuff. Or trying not to be exciting. Yeah. 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 Uh, They can't be too light. They mustn't be too lively. Uh, for the demons of dull people were dull themselves. So, yeah, interesting. Also, it makes sense, right? Because, like, if... I, I, I don't think that there would be opposites, really. I don't think that you'd be really lively and then your demon be, like, really boring. Yeah, definitely. Um, I do not enjoy the next thing that happens, which is that... I mean, I'm fine with the fact that she, like, checks her temperature and looks in her ears and stuff. It's all a bit mm. weird and clinical, but whatever. But she gives Lyra some pyjamas that are clean and of good quality, like Tony Macarius's anorak. But again, there is a second-hand air about them that made Lyra feel very uneasy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bloody love a second-hand shop, a bloody love a vintage shop and a charity shop. I am 100% here for wearing hand-me-downs and second-hand clothes, but I am not here for the hand-me-down clothes that definitely belong to dead children. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is what this situation is is yeah but not ones that not ones that children have died in no thank you so sinister it's so sinister that she's like here are these clothes and like then okay and they're good quality and they're clean but there's something about them that says it's 
it's sinister that it's like these have been worn by other kids and not in a not in a not in a like they've grown out of them kind of way in a they're dead now kind of way yeah <laughs> they, they yeah. are not doing the growing anymore oh, yeah <laughs> It's scary. Oh, God. Yeah. There's just little bits of this, like, scary, slightly ominous qualities being, like, laced through this whole chapter that I really like. And that's one of them. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, yeah, I agree. She complains that the clothes aren't hers and asks if she'll get her own back. And the uh, sister Clara says yes. And she asks where they are. And the nurse says, the experimental station. Um, and Lyra doesn't press her for more information because she's still playing the part of Lizzie. Because he's just like, yeah. that wasn't an answer. It's like, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> that is a yeah. really crappy answer. But And it's a shame. It's kind of frustrating that Lyra's like, well, the character I've made for myself, I yeah. can't ask Yeah, exactly. More. Yeah, She kind of put herself in a box, but for the best, because yeah. obviously we don't know what would have happened if she was just being herself. So, Yeah. I enjoy this kind of part that she's playing for herself as well because she is doing a very good job of it and not letting herself be liar in the moment because she the one thing she can think when she's told she can't get her clothes back is to still demand mm. her toy back, which is very like yeah. just normal child yeah. thing to do. And she's offered a nice woolly bear or a pretty doll. <laughs> no, thanks. And a, this like gross drawer oh, full of God. secondhand toys that lay in the drawer like dead things. Um, <laughs> that's that's a quote. It's so again, it's so sinister. Those death toys. Um, <laughs> and Lyra makes herself like stand and look at them and pick this like gross sounding rag doll out. And she's like, she'd never had a jo- doll, but she knew yeah. what to do and pressed it absently to her chest. Oh. And it's like <laughs> her opinion of the character she's playing. It's so low. Yeah, but I love well, it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of think that she's probably met a lot of Lizzie Brooks's in her life that she did not care for. Yeah. <laughs> like little girls that were the so polar opposite to what she is, which is why she's struggling with it, but also why she knows exactly what to do as well. Yeah, I can see her being quite like teasing the yeah. girl that she is yeah. right now kind of thing. She has to keep the money belt as well. And I think she's very good at playing this, like, in curiosity and distracted, like, just get on with the job nature of the nurse to her advantage. Because she, when she's getting the money belt back, she also um, whips the the tin out of her boot while the the nurse is, like, answering a phone call. Which I find, like, I think she's just, she's good at using her situation to her advantage. Yeah, she is. Uh, So then she, she's got everything. Like she, like you said, the phone rings and Sister Clara goes to answer it, and she takes the spy fly box from her boo, and Sister Clara then takes Lyra for something to eat, and it's like a weird canteen, school canteen vibes. I love the description of the table in the canteen. Oh yeah, it grosses me out, but it's like nostalgia. <laughs> oh yeah, it really grossed me out as well. I was like, oh, no, thank you, no, thank you all. A dozen round white tables were covered in crumbs. And the sticky rings where drinks had been carelessly put down, dirty plates and cutlery were stacked on a steel trolley. There were no windows, so to give an illustration of light and space, one wall was covered in a huge photogram showing a tropical beach with a bright blue sky and some white sand and coconut palms. A, I love the description of the table and the sticky rings. It grosses me out, but I love it. And B, (laughs) the shit picture of like a tropical scene on the wall adds to it being like weirdly sinister and I don't know why. So what that reminds me of right now is me playing on Animal Crossing because I am trapped in my flat 
And then I'm playing on Animal Crossing and I <laughs> my house on Animal Crossing. I'm on a beach. I'm living life. I'm fishing. There's a nice backdrop. And then here's me in my fucking four walls. And that's what it reminds me of at the minute. I was like, oh, uh, yeah, that's like me when I'm playing <laughs> Animal Crossing. <laughs> it is just like you're in this like gross like grey hospitally station in literally the middle of nowhere what can we do to cheer these kids up oh let's slap a pretty picture on the wall the man who brought her in brings her some food and this quote is me always there was no need to starve so she ate the stew and mashed potatoes with relish no need to stop. What I want to know is, did she eat them with relish? As in like, nom, 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 nom. Or did, <laughs> were they served with relish on the side? <laughs> you could read it either way. You could. Would you have relish on stew and mash? Maybe, like a little yeah. bit of Henderson's relish. <laughs> a little bit of Hendo's. <laughs> no? Yeah. I'm <laughs> just saying, is she either ate them enthusiastically or... With actual relish. That's very true. Yeah. But it did make me laugh when it was like, there's no need to stop. I'm like... No, there isn't. There's never any need to starve. However, it is pretty obvious after this that there was probably drugs in the food or the milk <laughs> that she's been given. Yeah, I know, which which sucks. So maybe she should have foregone that meal, but also it's just my, my, my attitude to life is there's no need to starve. The conversation that follows is simultaneously a really great example of Lyra thinking on her feet and being really fast and quick to find the lies that she needs to find to get through the situation. And an example of a horrendous man gaslighting a child. This gaslighting motherfucker. I was so fucking mad when I was reading this. I was like, how fucking dare you, sir? I cannot. Oh, I just want to fucking smash his head into a wall. Sorry, that's really violent, but I hate (laughs) gaslighting. I hate it and I'm so mad about it. It is a really horrifying and frustrating situation and it's really easy to put yourself in those shoes of a child that's not being listened to or is being told something that isn't true by an adult and feeling powerless and this like passage does a really good job of making you feel in those shoes and giving you that feeling of frustration of being aware of what's going on and somebody trying to gaslight you but interestingly it's very funny because like he's lying his ass off to her and she's lying her ass off to him but we're coming straight down on her side in this situation yeah i think that is because she is the vulnerable person in this situation and she is right yeah exactly and she's lying to survive he's lying to do something horrific to her oh definitely it's it's sad because we see as well how this horrible man gaslighting Lyra ends up getting to her because she ends up like she wants she wants to cry and it really does get to her and I think most of us probably have been in a situation where we've had someone attempting to gaslight you and it is the most frustrating thing ever to have that happen and as a child I just can't who probably doesn't even know that she's like she obviously she knows that something's wrong but she doesn't know probably doesn't know what gaslighting is she just knows that a grown-up's trying to make her believe something that isn't true. But yeah, the, a quick summation of the conversation that happens is that Liz, is that Lyra um, kind of explains that they're traders and that she was taken in some kind of a struggle or a fight. Um, and she kind of does a really good job of lying her ass off and kind of explaining why she was out in the wild, mm. why she was with those men and what had happened and explains that there was a fight and she was taken in the fight. And the guy's like, oh, well, you're, you're quite safe here. And she's kind of, explaining that she's worried about her dad and it's like they were shooting arrows and he's like oh you thought they did that often happens in intense cold lizzie you fall asleep and you have bad dreams and you can't remember what's true and what isn't that wasn't a fight 
Don't worry, your father is safe and sound and he'll be looking for you now and soon he'll come here because this is the only place for him. Like, it's I hate horrible. It. I hate it so much. Sorry, I couldn't get through that. She has legitimate fears and he is just patronising her and lying through his teeth and just being really just really shitty and it's not very nice at all awful i hate it i hate it and then poor lyra he sends lyra off with sister clara and her poor feet are dragging and she's feeling really like Mm -hmm. droopy and tired and she if we think quite hard like she had just had a sleep on the sledge i'm sure it wasn't very restful when we arrived so the fact that she's already falling asleep again is another hint to the fact that she has probably been drugged and yeah she just gets this impression of like rows of beds and children's faces and just completely conks out and falls asleep and she wakes up with somebody shaking her and there's a great simile here she it says with a huge effort as if she were pushing a boulder up a slope lyra forces herself to wake up and i really like that quirk i feel like when you're in a deep sleep and you're trying to wake up it really does feel like that yeah, definitely. It's a very familiar feeling. Um, and the feeling of trying to like open your eyes when they're so heavy. Yeah. Is, um, yeah, really relatable. Yeah. And she sees three girls around her and they're all whispering. Uh, and one says that they gave her sleeping pills, which seems about bloody right. And they're asking her a bunch of questions. She's very good though, even when she's like clearly been drugged and like literally just woken up she still manages to yeah fall straight back into her lie because if someone had just woken me up and asked me what my name was i wouldn't be able to lie i'd just barely be able to answer at all <laughs> i wouldn't have yeah. my wits about me to do it so yeah. so then lyra thinks that they probably put sleeping pills in her in her food and um asks where they are uh or like where the place is and they say that it's the middle of nowhere and that they usually bring more than one kid in at a time because that's kind of what they're asking her like saying is it just you because they usually bring like a bunch of kids here Mm. and then they have like a back and forth conversation where they like talk about some stuff i love this conversation because it kind of it really shows that despite the fact that the grown-ups are clearly not telling the kids anything they've picked up on an awful lot in the short time they've been here and that kids really really do put two and two together quite quickly because they seem to know a lot of the stuff that Lyra knows and that we thought Lyra was special for knowing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so they have like that conversation. They talk about that. Lyra asks them, what, what do they do there? The girls say they don't really know, but they measure dust. <laughs> and then they have like, all the other girls like having a bit of back and forth, like, you don't know. And she's like, yeah, I do. And like all that kind of stuff. Um, and they take them away one by one and no one comes back. Yeah. And there's boys as well, but they keep the uh, sexes separate. And they know that the people they've been taken by are the gobblers as well. They're like, you know, the gobblers, you know. And Lyra's like, yeah, I know. Um, so they they know that they've been taken by this thing they were all scared of. There's a cute bit where the demons are all listening at the door. And I imagine like, yeah, like classic sitcom, they're all like piled on top of each other, like with an ear to the door. I was like, no. I enjoyed that they're all doing that, except for the one little girl that's got her rabbit demon who she's just cuddling. And she won't let him go because it's so cute. I want a rabbit to cuddle. (laughs) Next. (laughs) Yeah. What demon don't I want? Because I want everyone's demons. They say that it's boring there and there's not much to do. But that they do take care of them. And they're not treated badly. Yeah. And they get given like tests and they get measured and stuff. And then one of them says, oh, it's not boring when Mrs. Coulter comes. Excuse me. 
bah, bah, bah. yeah lyra struggles to hide it pan kind of like flinches and lyra has to kind of brush it off as being like oh it's because of the sleeping pills they've made us dozy and who, who's mrs Coulter. But I can only imagine the feeling in Lyra's chest right now of being like, oh god, Mrs. Coulter actually comes here, like, to this building? Because Lyra, for all she knew, Coulter didn't leave London. Like... Yeah, exactly. That's scary. And the kids are kind of saying what they think Mrs. Coulter does, so... They say she's the one that trapped us, most of us anyway. When she comes, you know there's going to be kids disappearing. She likes watching the kids when they take us away. She likes seeing what they do to us. This boy, Simon, he reckons they kill kill us and Mrs. Coulter watches. And then they go into what they think about demons, weighing them and measuring them. And then they're like, they touch your demons? I'm like, no. God, no. They put them on scales. And, And then they mention dust. And I really like this bit because... Lyra says, what dust? And they have taken away the capital D because obviously Lyra is playing Lizzie Brooks and she doesn't know that dust is special. So she's like, what dust? And Philip Pullman has decided to do that iteration of the word dust with a lowercase d, which I really enjoy. Yeah, I like that a lot. I hadn't noticed that. That's really great. Because everyone else is, um, all the other kids are saying like it's got a capital D and then that's the only one where it doesn't. Yeah, to give it that weight of importance of being other other than like house dust. Yeah. And he says that if you haven't got any dust, that's good, but everyone gets dust in the end. And that's new information, right? From this child. We've not heard that before, I don't think. I think we know that from the photograph in chapter two that um dust flows more onto adults than it does onto children. Mm. But we didn't know that if you haven't got any dust, that's good. I don't think we did. Yeah. But everyone gets dust in the end. So, yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, they mentioned, like, the Tartars, that apparently they drill the holes in their head, which we've been hearing a lot about recently, to let the dust in. And all this stuff is, is interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure there'll be bits of it that, that are true, but because it's kids talking and they are reiterating things that they've maybe heard and maybe it, they're talking about things to maybe try and impress each other with so you kind of don't know what's true and what isn't and what's been exaggerated yeah i enjoy that uh there's things that consistently come up again and again though so it's like in again in chapter two lyra sees the head and she hears about the hole in the head literally last chapter i think is when she learns that the hole in the head isn't a form of torture or something horrible that someone does to their enemies but it's a thing that people do as like a mark of respect and like a rite of passage within that culture and then now someone said the hole in the head is to let dust in so it's like chapter on chapter like a different parts of the book we're learning tiny little things about this process and just building this picture and the same thing's true of the whole idea of dust and then the same thing was true of how they were showing and hinting at what might be happening with like um mm-hmm. the lost boy yeah and things like that um which i really like their way of doing it and also (laughs) just a sinister thing that the kids have been mentioning the entire way through this conversation is they keep being like yeah loads of kids come in and then one at a time they get taken away and they never come back yeah and i can only imagine being one of the children in that situation and just seeing your friends and people just disappearing one one at a time and never coming back and how terrifying that must be but at the same time, there's these people looking after you mm. and keeping you comfy and all this stuff and like feeling so cared for but unsafe must be really weird. Yeah, it's super confusing. And obviously they're doing it for, for that reason as well, to like keep the kids in line because 
you could go down the route of treating them all terribly to keep them in line, but I think it's really clever that they're actually treating them quite well and like keep, well, they think, well, we assume that they think they're keeping all this information from them, but like you said, it's kind of like seeped through uh, into their like consciousness and they've heard snippets of stuff. But I think it is a clever way to do that, to treat them nice and keep them safe, but then there is still this like air of terror over them as well. Yeah. And you see the way throughout this chapter that the reason the children have been able to glean so much information is because consistently throughout this chapter, grown-ups have had conversations in the same room as Lyra, yeah. but not to her. And they've just not really bothered to um, disguise what they're saying. They seem to just assume if you're not talking to a child, the child isn't listening to you. And that's just so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that gross underestimation that the grown-ups are making and that that's allowed the children to piece together so much more of this puzzle definitely so they're talking uh, about the tartars and the hurl and head thing and annie says she's gonna ask mrs coulter about that and lyra asks when she's coming and they say the day after tomorrow bum 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 (sighs) no poor lyra Uh, a cold drench of terror went down lyra's spine and pantalaemon crept very close yeah ah yeah just that poor uh-huh. Lyra in that moment of just being like, not only has her heart sunk when she found out Coulter comes to the building, but finding out she's coming the day after tomorrow is so scary. And like the last line or the last little paragraph where it's like, the other girls went on talking, but Lyra and Pantalaemon nestled down deep in the bed and tried to get warm, knowing that for hundreds of miles all around her little bed, there was nothing but fear. <sighs> it's so scary. It's so true. It's so sad. That's... That's that chapter, folks. <laughs> That's the end of the chapter. Why are they all so sad all the time? Do you want to know what the next chapter's called? It's called The Demon Cages, so that sounds like it's going to be a bundle of laughs. Oh, God. <laughs> We're doing the lightest chapters in this quarantine. <laughs> what have we got ourselves into? Oh, God. Maybe we should have stayed at one every other week and it wouldn't have been so... <laughs> it's quite overwhelming, isn't it? I'm, um, I am quite enjoying the pace that we're getting through some of this more stressful stuff, though. It's like, let's rip the band-aid off now. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, like this chapter, like, like I said at the top, the only real word I can think to describe it is just fucking stressful. Like, I'm stressed now just talking about all this stuff. I'm like, we, because before these like three horrendous chapters, we've had like quite a lot of like nice chapters where we're kind of like flowing through at a really nice pace and we're, ooh, we met Yorick and ooh, ooh, Lee Scoresby's here. And now it's like, everything's horrendous. And I'm like, ah. Watch this lovely ragtag team of fighters grow as Lyra and her gang go to beat the bad guys. And now let's rip the main character away from that stable situation that she's built for herself and put her right in the, like, eye of the storm. That sounds good. (laughs) Do you have an award to give out? Do you want to go first? Because I did not write mine down. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to give mine to Pan this week. Because I think he was, he did a great job at protecting Lyra from, like, shoving her down into the snow and then just like you said helping her out when she was on the sledge and I think he was really on it this week although his comment about John Farr I wasn't here for but (laughs) I enjoyed I think we saw a bit more like personality from Pan this time and like I think he really stepped up in like helping Lyra so I think he deserves an award this week nice you know what I'm gonna like finish off that combo and give mine to Lyra (sighs) her first ever yeah award from us this is the first time where I've truly felt that she's in need of like a beacon of hope yeah 
because the situations she's been in previously have been bad but not hopeless or she's had this kind of light attitude and sense of humor and like scrappiness and she's been able to like get her way through it and there's always been like an escape method or some way for her to Mm -hmm. get through this situation and find a friend and just the way that this chapter has gone for Lyra has it's been very isolating and she's now in a situation where she's not, she's not even being herself. She's having to lie about who she is in order to protect herself. And the only method of protection she has is her lies. Um, mm. And so she's really, really vulnerable. And I think what she needs is a little little pin badge trophy to kind of bolster her and get her through. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she'd be really jealous if we gave Pan an award and didn't give her one. So I've got to keep the peace. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's very true. Oh, Lyra and Pan. We love you. You do. I feel like I need to decompress. <laughs> I know. I also feel like I've shouted a lot in this chapter. <laughs> uh, it's fine, it's warranted. Breathe. <laughs> Have a breathe. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at her.materialspod at gmail.com We bloody love an email. We love an email. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash HDMPod You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. I'm Faye and when I'm not talking about Lyra and Pan, I'm probably writing. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Faye which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my blog posts, although I haven't written anything for a little while, I'm on Medium at Faye.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about demons and dust, I'm making designer toys, art and illustrations. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes, and in my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. A huge thank you to Johnny Knock for his musical stylings and for help with navigating and teaching me the scary tech stuff. We'll see you in two weeks' time. And don't forget, keep telling stories and all will be well. Yay! Yay, bye! Oh, it's done. Go take a deep breath <laughs> and just relax from that stressful Decompress. chapter. Decompress. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Take care, bye! Bye! <laughs>